Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 8th of, no, the 6th of August. It's actually uh, the commemoration of Hiroshima Day today, so um, important to remember that. But of course, you're listening to Asia Pacific Currents, which is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow. And uh, yes, hope you're having a good morning. And on today's program, as uh, usual, we've got a roundup of, uh, of news from the region. And uh, and um, and then the second half of the uh, of the program, we'll have an interview with um, Anel from the Labor Party of the Philippines, who will be talking about the ongoing um, war on drugs massacres in uh, in the Philippines and the um, all the extrajudicial killings and the significance for working class activists of this um, of these events. Really, very tragic. Um, but we'll go to our. Um, Labor update, but Giselle, um, how do people get con- in contact with, with us? <laughs> um, if you do want to get in touch with AAWL, you can find us on the web, all the w's.aawl.org.au. You can email us at aawl at aawl.org.au. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find us on those social media platforms. Of course, you can ring us on 9663 But it is time now for news from around the region. We're going to kick off in Palestine uh, and turning our attention once again to the um, hunger striking Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. Bilal Khayyid is a member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Recently, he had completed his jail sentence of over 14 years. Once completed... The Israeli government handed him another six-month administrative detention. Bilal has now been on hunger strike for almost two months. His situation has attracted mass support from other Palestinian prisoners, human rights activists, as well as a Tunisian general labour union. Solidarity protests around the world are planned in the coming days. The massive incarceration of Palestinians by the Israeli state is a symptom of the continuing Israeli occupation and repression of Palestinians. I just want to say on that <laughs> before, Pierre, you jump in there. Um, we are screening a film on Monday night. I'll announce details of that uh, towards the end of the program. But, of course, we're screening The Lab, which looks at the um, Israeli arms trade and, of course, the, um, the, the massive prison industrial complex that is very much linked to the arms trade in Israel. That's right, and uh, I was going to say just like something slightly different. That um, you know, unfortunately, we just seem to bring uh, t- these type of stories from Palestine every so often about the the struggle of the Palestinian prisoners. The the, the conditions uh, is, are quite harsh. We move um, very close uh, from uh, Palestine to Saudi Arabia, where many thousands of Indian migrant workers in Saudi Arabia have been left in desperate conditions as the economic crisis deepens in that country. Now, of course, uh, the Gulf countries have got um, 
uh, many thousands, if not millions, actually. They've got millions of migrant workers, uh, temporary migrant workers there. But these Indian workers have been left with no money due to unpaid wages. And they were literally starving until the Indian government shipped tens of tons of food to them. And that's actually not an exaggeration of what has been happening. Um, this latest crisis once again highlights the savage exploitation that millions of migrant workers face when working in the Gulf countries. And again, just to reiterate, a lot of these um, our workers have basically been left with no money, so they can't afford the ticket home. And even if they could scrape the money home, the employers have the passport, so they're stuck there. Moving now to Pakistan, the mining industry in Pakistan is poorly regulated, union organising is repressed and enforcement of labour laws is weak. This results in workplaces that are incredibly dangerous to workers. In late July, the death of three more coal miners were reported from the Shahri coal mine situated in the Balochistan province in Pakistan. These deaths are just the latest for the coal mining industry in Pakistan. And only with strong and independent unions enforcing health and safety standards will the situation improve. And I guess it's also important to say this is a common story in coal mine, in the coal mining industry across the world. China has one of the most dangerous coal mining industries. We saw um, Turkey as well. And we've recently reported on um, more deaths in the Turkish coal mines. So um, not only is the requirement for independent unions, but an international movement for, um, for coal mining workers. Yes, that, that's, that's uh, very true. And um, we, go, we jump a little bit to Southeast Asia, that we go to Malaysia, where our regular listeners would know that uh, over the years of this program, we've covered the fact that uh, Malaysia was one of those countries that had the, um, the Internal Security Act, which allowed, them to, allowed the government to um, imprison people without charge for two years. A few years ago, that was disbanded, which was seen as a great victory. But um, just in the last few months, the, um, the Malaysian government has actually pushed through a new uh, law in, um, uh, through parliament, which comes into effect, came into effect early this week. Now, instead of the Internal Security Act, it's called the National Security Act. Um, this law allows government to declare security areas and um, to basically declare virtual martial, martial law in areas deemed to be under security threat. Arrests without warrants, property seizures, ban on demonstrations included. And of course, this comes on at a time when um, Prime Minister Najib Razak is under incredible pressure on, the, on a scandal of a um, one billion Malaysian ringgit um, scandal, which is on, ongoing. So um, these are, are very worrying times for our fellow activists in Malaysia. And of course, when governments start to introduce these laws and increase repression uh, and, and start to behave in these strong man kind of kind of ways, I think it actually rather than um, revealing the strength of a government, it reveals the weakness of a government. So, um, you know, we've been talking about the uh, the, the worldwide economic crisis. I think we're going to start to see more of these uses of repression and increased repression against us. Moving to the Philippines, uh, the Cavite Export Processing Zone in the Philippines hosts a number of large factories where unions are actively suppressed. Uh, NT Philippines Inc., which is a Japanese-owned electronics factory, 
is the latest company that's trying to destroy a newly formed union among its 1,000-strong workforce. Union members are being isolated and harassed, while union leaders are being moved away from other workers. As NT Philippines is a part of the electronics global supply chain, the local union is asking workers in other countries to take action against the company. Coordinated industrial action across countries is the best way for workers to counter large, globally integrated companies. We're going to learn a little bit more about that dispute in the second part of the program when um, Pierre speaks with Arnel. Um, not about this dispute. Not about this dispute. No, anyway, <laughs> Which ma- dispute, ma- Pierre? Maybe in the future. Um, but, well, you just have to keep listening <laughs> after the break. I'll try. And, I'll wait with bated uh, breath. Uh, that's right. Um, we go to. Um, do you have another story there? You haven't. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I'll start this. So we've got two more stories to go. Um, um, there was a meeting in uh, Phnom Penh in Cambodia earlier this week, or actually um, late last week, that was organised by the Industrial Global uh, Union and which uh, was, uh, was attended and, and participated by, save, um, by unions from seven countries in the region to strengthen collaboration towards achieving living wages for garment workers, which is something that we've actually um, uh, talked about um, uh, a lot over the last few years about the, uh, the horrendous conditions and low wages that garment workers in, the, in, the, in this industry face and how there is a race to the bottom. And the interesting thing from this uh, meeting that was discussed was that um, affiliates that were there agreed that industry-level bargaining must be developed in each country as the best means securing higher wages and better conditions, i.e. not just company by company or subcontracting company by company, but a whole industry level. And also benchmarking these collective agreements from different companies in the same industry across, um, across the country. So I think that, I mean, these are great ideals. It'll be very hard, but it's certainly something that we have to um, uh, produce more. We're basically um, unions in different countries in the same uh, sector actually organise and coordinate more to, uh, to achieve collective um, high wages and conditions. And in Australia, refugees in Australia are facing deadly repression. A recent report by two international human rights organisations has once again highlighted the barbaric treatment with refugees in Australia's offshore detention camps. While the Australian government response was to deny everything... Refugee activists in Australia are continuing to fight against these repressive policies. Even in death, refugees in these camps cannot find peace or justice. Actions in protest at the Australian government continue, with major demonstrations planned for later this month. And I think that um, um, that saying about not even in death is there's a refugee that has died uh, just recently, I think, in, in Nauru just this week. Uh, it was just an accident. Um, and the Australian government is uh, refusing to repatriate his body. Um, but that's the end of... Um, of um, of the, the news, news from the, around the region. That's right, that's right. Uh, a bit of a tongue-tied there, but anyway, that sometimes happens. We'll go to a couple of uh, a community announcements and then we'll be back with the interview um, with Arnel about the drug wars in the Philippines. Um, Giselle. <laughs> 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. 
They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike? played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force. Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War is terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Aranda Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26th to 30th. For all the details, head to closepinegap.org. Getting quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return. That's closepinegap.org. See you there. Close Pine Gap is a 3CR supporter. is terrorism? It's just on 13 past 9 o'clock here on Asia Pacific Currents on your favourite community radio station, 3CR. As I mentioned uh, previously at the start of the program, right now the, in the Philippines I've got a new president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, and he's very big on law and order and he's unleashed a savage uh, war on, on drugs which has led to the latest count is at least 500 people been um, killed in extrajudicial killings either by the police or death squads. I caught up with Anel from the Philippine Labour Party earlier this week to talk about this phenomenon. President Rodrigo Duterte stated policy was an all-out war on drug users. Can you give us a background to this and had he implemented such a policy when he was in charge of Davao City? I think it's best to start with the political situation in Davao City around the time when uh, the president, the present president, Rodrigo Duterte, started out his career as mayor of that city. Davao is in the southern part of the Philippines. So Duterte became mayor of Davao just after the uprising that brought down the Marcos dictatorship. And around that time, the twilight of the dictatorship, the island of Mindanao, where Davao is located, and the city of Davao in particular, the revolutionary movement and movement against the dictatorship grew by leaps and bounds. And then there were a lot of breakthrough experiences in Mindanao and even in Dabao. For example, the form of struggle called Welgang Bayan or People's Strike, which to sum up means a combination of a general strike by workers with transport strike and then mass demonstrations in the streets and then combined with guerrilla operations in urban areas uh, was a pioneering form of struggle in Mindanao and in Dabao. So, for example, in Dabao, Dabao City became known as a stronghold of the urban partisans, urban guerrillas, 
And to such a point that one area in Davao was called Nicaragdao in reference to Nicaragua and the Sandinistas there. So, but just before 1986, the time of the uprising, the revolutionary movement in Mindanao weakened significantly because of its own errors in campaign to weed out so-called infiltrators and a lot of uh, members, cadres were killed in because of that internal campaign. So just before the uprising that brought down the dictatorship and just before Duterte became mayor, the movement suffered a decline. But still, it, exert, it had influence and power enough such that uh, even Duterte had to acknowledge the strength of uh, the revolutionary movement. Thus, the links that Duterte forged with uh, the CPP around that time. And then, as when he became mayor, he had to grapple with the problem of the urban partisans in Davao and then the vigilante squads built by the military and the ruling class against the Communist Party and the urban guerrillas called Al-Samasa in Davao. So the issue of crime, peace and order, was from the very start as mayor of Davao City, uh, was a like a number one problem for Duterte. And because of that experience, that is actually his uh, number one platform for in, in his campaign for president, that he will bring peace and order to the whole of the Philippines, just like what he did in Davao. Latest reports mention that around 500 people have now been murdered either by the police or unidentified gunmen. What has been the reaction in the Philippines to this death toll? Well, unfortunately, there's not too much of outrage against it. In fact, the prevailing popular opinion is to regard the, the killings of criminals as generally positive and beneficial. Even the middle class, which to some would should be the first the first to advocate for human rights and the niceties of democracy in a bourgeois setting are very much are solidly behind Duterte. Actually exit polls suggest that the more educated you are and the richer you are, the more likely you would have voted for Duterte. And then things hasn't changed since he became president. In fact, now his Duterte's popularity is around 90%. There is largely popular support for Duterte and implicitly for even such extrajudicial killing as long as it is framed, as long as it is framed as a campaign against crime, as a campaign against drugs. We might get back on that um, question uh, in, a, in a second, but um, just one question. A lot of the killings have been done by the police, but a lot of them also by death squads. So who do people think these death squads are and how were they organised so quickly for them to come out in action so quickly? Of those hundreds of people killed, scores of them were killed by the police allegedly or supposedly in situations where 
the victims resisted resisted arrest so although of course everybody the common sense view is that they were just simply rubbed out or killed by the police but the most number of them were killed by unidentified people some of them were killed in public by motorcycle riding men so of course nobody has claimed responsibility so there's no death squad with a name that claims responsibility for the killings so for now it's everybody's guess who is doing it but the story circulating in the philippines and i personally believe that this is entirely credible is that most of the killings are done by operatives associated with the police. They're operating in either with the full knowledge of Duterte or just with his tacit approval. And it's because, simply because Duterte has publicly declared that criminals should be killed and he will protect the police and even civilians who will kill criminals. So even without the open acknowledgement by the government, those statements give fertile ground for secret dead squads to now operate. And it's entirely possible okay, that they're associated with the police who are in the camp of uh, Duterte or of the new administration. So what has been the impact of these killings and the related mass roundup of so-called drug users by the police on the poor working class community in the Philippines? First of all, it has created a climate of fear. Working class communities or depressed areas in the major cities. Although, because there really is a, a real problem with regards to drug addiction, there's still a like a prevailing opinion that as long as the people are really involved with drugs, uh, an iron fist policy with regards to that is, in the popular opinion, okay. So, although I guess that's, that's just a matter of time when more people are killed, so slowly but surely... The turn, the popular opinion will turn okay, against this the wave of extrajudicial killings. In fact, there's a, a one recent ano, event is that there's a father and son who were killed by the police inside the police station. It was said that they resisted the arrest, so that they were killed. But the news reports say that the father actually went to the police station in order to make sure that his son who has been arrested, uh, nothing bad will happen to his son who has been arrested by the police. And then, of course, it will turn out later that they both have been killed. So people are starting to question uh, what really is happening. Uh, did they really resist arrest or were they killed? There's also story going around that many if not some of those who were or being killed are being rubbed out by the killed by the police in order to kill their assets who might later turn on them and identify who are the authorities could be the police 
could be local politicians who are involved in the drug trade. Unfortunately, um, repression and mass killings like this we've seen, I mean, other countries and um, they always end badly for thousands of people and never really do anything for the issue at hand. As a final question, of course, death squads in the Philippines have got a long history. And do you think that the revival of these death squads uh, point to increasingly dangerous times for labor activists and the left in the future? That is entirely so. That is really the big problem. For now, the killings are framed as a war against crime and drugs. But as long as it remains popular, the same argument against so-called criminals and drug users or pushers could be used against other so-called troublemakers in society. Leftists, strikers, unionists could be next in line in a campaign to preserve or to gain peace and order in society. So that is actually the clear and present danger for the working class movement and mass movement as a whole if uh, the extrajudicial killings continue and there's no opposition or outrage generated against it. So although for now, the opposition people, there are people who do speak out against the extra the extrajudicial killings and are calling for a stop to it. It's not the political opposition which has basically disappeared because politicians have jumped ship, joined Duterte's desk camp. So it's now in the hands of the progressive movement to be the main position against the current drive of the Duterte administration and extrajudicial killings that are happening. So the human rights groups, key progressive personalities, most of the groups in the progressive movement Although not all, because as has been reported publicly, a section of the left is uh, publicly supporting Duterte, or one section of the left is publicly supporting the administration or is in a coalition with it. Thank you for that, Aunt Nell, and, and very worrying times for a lot of people in the Philippines. So again, thank you for that, and we'll certainly keep an eye uh, on, on this issue and, and hopefully the forces will become strong enough to stop these uh, mass killings of uh, really um, innocent uh, people. And so we wish you all the best and, and take care of yourself. Yes, and uh, thank you for the time. It's 40 years that the station's been around. I hope it's around for the next 40 years. CR has been a trailblazer. It's still the leader and the benchmark in terms of actually engaging the community. The role it plays is really, really, really important. And the role it plays in empowering people on a personal level, empowering communities and giving communities the power to actually take a bit of control of their future cannot be underestimated.
28 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. Just in the closing minutes of the program, I want to announce AAWL's upcoming film fundraiser. It's on Monday the 8th of August, so that's this coming Monday at six o'clock. We're screening a film called The Lab, which is about the Israeli uh, military industrial complex and arms trade. Uh, And the film is screening at Long Play, which is at 318 St George's Road in North Fitzroy. So that's six o'clock on Monday night at Long Play for an AAWL film screening. Tickets are $10 concession or $20 waged or any donation. And if you really want to see the film but you don't have money, no way I'm going to stop people coming. So just come in, let me know you've got no money and, you know, you're very welcome. And Do you think course, that's a good way to promote a fundraiser so you don't a, have to pay? I think that's a very good way, Giselle. And, of course, you, you missed out on the fact that you'll be able to meet people like us there. Mm, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Actually, oh, um, it is being uh, – it's being um, – we're going to have an introduction by um, anti-war stalwart activist Jacob Grech. So uh, he's going to give a bit of a background and a bit more information. And, of course, we might also talk a little bit about the upcoming Pine Gap protests. All right, and that's really the end of all we've got to, on today's program, Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, it's brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker. Links will be back uh, as usual next Saturday at 9 o'clock, but that's all from me, Pierre Morrow. And me, Giselle Hanna. And coming up next is Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.